0: All right, so I'm going to start this specific chapter by reading out of A Fateful Haven of uh, Virgil's Aeneid. I sing of warfare and a man at war from the seacoast of Troy in early days. He came to Italy by destiny to our Lavinian western shore. A fugitive, his captain, buffeted cruelly on land as on the sea, By blows from powers of the air, behind them baleful Juno in her sleepless rage. And cruel losses were his lot in war, till he could found a city and bring home his gods to Latium, land of the Latin race, the Alban lords and the high walls of Rome. Tell me the causes now, O muse. How galled in her divine pride and how sore at heart from her old wound, the queen of gods compelled him, a man apart devoted to his mission to undergo so many perilous days and enter into so many trials. Can anger black as this prey on the minds of heaven? Tyrian settlers in their ancient time held Carthage on the far shore of the sea, set against Italy and Tiber's mouth. A rich new town, warlike and trained for war, and Juno, we are told, cared more for Carthage than for any walled city of the earth, more than for Samos, even. There her armor and chariot were kept and fate permitting, Carthage would be the ruler of the world. So she intended and so nursed her that power. But she had heard long since that generations born of Trojan blood would one day overthrow her Tyrian walls, and from that blood a race would come in time with ample kingdoms arrogant in war. For Libya's ruin. So the parquet spun. In fear of this, and holding in memory the old war she had carried out on Troy, for Argos' sake, the origins of that anger, that suffering still wrinkled deep within her, hidden away, the judgment Paris gave, snubbing her loveliness, the race she hated, the honors given ravished Ganymede, Saturnian juno burning for it all buffeted on the waste of sea those trojans left by the greeks and pitiless achilles keeping them far from latinium for years they wandered as their destiny drove them on from one sea to the next so hard and huge a task it was to found the roman people All right, chapter six, Virgil, and the subject of secondary epic. This visage tells thee that my doom is past, nor should the change be mourned, even if the joys of sense were able to return as fast, and surely as they vanish, earth destroys those raptures duly. Erebus disdains, calm pleasures there abide, majestic pains. Wadsworth. The epic subject, as later critics came to understand it, is Virgil's invention. He has altered the very meaning of the word epic. Starting from the desire that the Romans should have a great poem to rival the Iliad, He had to ask himself what kind of poem would really express and satisfy the Roman spirit. The answer to this question he doubtless found in his own heart. We can find it by considering the earlier Roman attempts in this kind. The two previous Latin epics had been quite remarkably unlike Homer. Nevaeus had told the story of the first Punic War. But apparently, on so large a scale that he could begin with the legend of Aeneas, starting with the same legend, had worked steadily through the history of his own people down to his own time. It is clear that both poets wrote what we should call metrical chronicles. Things very much more like the work of Leaemon and Robert of Gloucester than that of Homer. They catered for a taste common to the romans and ourselves but curiously lacking among the greeks neither herodotus nor thucydides attempted to trace the history of even a single greek state from its origins the phenomena of growth the slow process by which some great thing has taken its present shape does not seem to have interested the greeks their heart's desire was the timeless, the unchangeable, and they saw time as mere flux. But the Romans were different, whether directly or, as Dr. Tilliard would say, obliquely. Their great poem, unless it was to be a mere pastiche of Homer, would have to deal with the same sort of material as Naavius and Aeneas. Yet, on the other hand, so true an artist as Virgil could not be content with the clumsiness and monotony of a mere chronicle. His solution of the problem, one of the most important revolutions in the history of poetry, was to take one single national legend and treat it in such a way that we feel the vaster theme to be somehow implicit in it. He has to tell a comparatively short story and give us the illusion of having lived through a great space of time. He has to deal with a limited number of personages and make us feel as if national or almost cosmic issues are involved. He must locate his action in a legendary past and yet make us feel the present and the intervening centuries already foreshadowed. After Virgil and Milton, this procedure seems obvious enough. But is it obvious only because a great poet, faced with an all but insoluble problem, discovered this answer and with it discovered new possibilities for poetry itself?
1: Partly as a result of romantic primitivism, a silly habit has grown up of making Homer a kind of norm by which Virgil is to be measured. But the radical differences between them begin to appear on the very first page of the Aeneid. The third paragraph of the poem furnishes us with examples of nearly all the methods whereby he makes his comparatively simple fable carry the weight of so much destiny. Notice the key words. Carthage is an ancient city, facing the Tiber's mouth a long way off. He is already spreading out his story both in time and space. Juno hoped to give it Empire of the Earth, if the fates allow, but she has already heard a rumor that, one day, the Trojan seed will bruise it. The whole Punic War has come in, but Juno is not thinking only of the future. An older war is rankling in her mind. She thinks of her Argives at Troy Wall, of the Judgment of Paris, and Ganymede exalted to immortal place. We are not, you see, at the beginning. The story on which we are embarked fades backward into an even remoter past. The heroes whose adventures we are to follow are the remnant of some earlier order, destroyed before the curtain rose, survivors, and, as it were ghosts, hunted, and here wideness in space comes in again, Maria Omnia Circum, while Juno bars them from Latium, leading them far. For wandered over alien foam, so mighty was the labor of the birth of Rome. The labor, the moles, is the point. These men are not fighting for their own hand like Homeric heroes; they are men with a vocation, men on whom a burden is laid.
2: The more obvious instances of this enlargement of Virgil's subject have no doubt often been noticed. The glimpses of the future in job's prophecy in book one or in the vision of anchises or in the shield or again the connection of the whole fourth book with the punic wars perhaps the most moving of all these forward links is the visit of aeneas to the site of rome in book eight the backwards link are of equal importance in determining the poetical quality of the aenid if I'm not mistaken, it is almost the first poem which carries a real sense of the abysm of time. Priscus, Vitus, and Antiquus are key words in Virgil. In books six through eight, the true heart of the poem, we're never allowed to forget that Latium, Lurkwood, the hiding place of aged Saturn, has been waiting for the Trojans from the, from the beginning of the world. The palace of king latinus is very unlike any house in homer awful with words woods and piety of elder days where carved in ancient cedar their old sires appear in order father idyllis and gray sabine bearing his hook in token how he loved the vine and saturn old and Genius with his double face there is a poetry that reiterated Readings cannot exhaust in all these early Italian scenes. In the first sight of the Tiber, the lonely prayer to the unknown river and the long river journey on which the ships startle those hitherto unviolated forests, I do not know a better example of imagination in the highest sense than when Charon wonders at that golden bough so long unseen. Dark centuries... Of the unhistoried lower world are conjured up in half a line.
0: But Virgil uses something more subtle than mere length of time. Our life has bends as well as extension, moments at which we realize that we have just turned some great corner and that everything, for better or worse, will always henceforth be different. In a sense, as we have already seen, the whole Aeneid is a story of just such a transition in the world order, the shift of civilization from the East to the West, the transformation of the little remnant, the reliquias of the old into the germ of the new, hence the sadness of the farewells and the alacrity of new beginnings, so conspicuously brought together at the opening of book three, dominate the whole poem. Sometimes the sense of pace aphoriodi is made explicit as when the Trojans arrive at Actium and find themselves at last beyond hope disengaged from the Greek world, and this important moment was underlined by a change of season. Meanwhile, the sun had rolled through the delaying year, and icy winter, roughening the dark waves, was here. Book 3, Lines 285 Sometimes it is an infinite... Contesimal change of language which may pass the reader's conscious mind unnoticed, but which doubtless plays its part in coloring his total experience, as when the old Aegean hatreds have slipped far enough behind for crafty Ulysses to become unforgettable Ulysses. Perhaps one of Virgil's most daring successes is the appearance of Crusa's ghost in Book Two. The sad, ineffectual creature, shouldered aside by destiny, must come to prophesy the wife who will replace her and the fortunes of her husband in which she will have no share. If she were a living woman, it would be inexcusably cruel, but she is not a woman. She is a ghost, the wraith of all that which, whether regretted or unregretted, is throughout the poem drifting away settling down into the irrevocable past not as in elegiac poets that we may luxuriate in melancholy reflections on mutability but because the fates of jove so ordered it because thus and not otherwise some great thing comes about aeneas himself is mistaken for a ghost in the next book In a sense, he is a ghost of Troy until he becomes the father of Rome. All through the poem, we are turning that corner. It is this which gives the reader of the Aeneid the sense of having lived through so much. No man who has once read it with full perception remains an adolescent.
1: This theme of the great transition is, of course, closely connected with the Virgilian sense of vocation. Nothing separates him so sharply from Homer, and that, sometimes, in places where they are superficially most alike. Aeneas's speech encouraging his men in Book 1 is closely modeled on Odysseus's speech in Odyssey, Book 12. Both remind their followers that they have been in tighter places before, but Odysseus speaks simply as any captain to any crew safety is the goal. Aeneas adds something quite unhomeric. One day it will be past time to recall this woe. Through all these freaks of fortune and hard straits we go, right onward to the promised home, the Latinian earth, where we shall rest and Ilium have her second birth. Book 1, line 206.
2: Vesit etir duram piatas. With this conception virgil has added a new dimension to poetry i have read that his aeneas so guided by dreams and omens is hardly the shadow of a man besides homer's achilles but a man an adult is precisely what he is achilles has been little more than a passionate boy you may of course prefer the poetry of spontaneous passion to the poetry of passion at war with vocation and finally reconciled every man to his taste but we must not blame the second for not being the first with virgil european poetry grows up for there are certain moods in which all that had gone before seems as it were boys poetry depending both for its charm and for its limitations on certain naivety seen alike in its heady ecstasies and in its heady despairs which we certainly cannot, perhaps should not recover, mens emota manet. The mind remains unshaken while the vain tears fall. Mm-hmm. That is the Virgilian note. But in Homer, there was nothing in the long run to be unshaken about. You were unhappy or you were happy. And that was all. Aenus lives in a different world he is compelled to see something more important than happiness.
0: It is the nature of a vocation to appear to men in the double character of a duty and a desire, and Virgil does justice to both. The element of desire is brought out in all those passages where the Hesperian land is hinted, prophesied, and, quote, dim discovered. First through the lips of Hector's ghost, a land still without a name, then by Crucius' ghost, with the names Hesperia and Tiber added. Then comes the all-important third book, the reluctant yet unfaltering search for the abiding city, always supposed to be so near and always in reality so distant And our slowly increasing knowledge of it. It is our ancient mother. It is a terra antiqua. Mighty in arms and rich in soil. It is quite close. But not for us who must go many miles about. And make a different landfall. Now it is in sight. But not the part of it we seek. This is the very portrait of a vocation, a thing that calls or beckons, that calls inexorably, yet you must strain your ears to catch the voice that insists on being sought, yet refuses to be found.
1: In the human response to this we find the element of duty. On the one hand we have Aeneas, who suffers but obeys. He has one moment of real disobedience in the fourth book, which we read all amiss because an increased respect for women and for the sexual relation have made the hero appear inhuman at the very moment when Virgil intends to exhibit, and, for a historically-minded reader, does exhibit, his human weakness. But everywhere else he bears the yoke well, though with a wistful side glance at those not called to bear it. Live happy, you whose story is accomplished. We, commanded, move from destiny to destiny. Your rest is won, you wander the wide seas no more, nor seek that ever-vanishing Ausonian shore. Book 3, lines 496. On the other hand, we have the women who have heard the call and lived long in painful obedience and yet desert at last. Virgil perceives their tragedy very clearly. To follow the vacation does not mean happiness, But once it has been heard, there is no happiness for those who do not follow. Hmm. They are, of course, allowed to stay behind. Every arrangement is made for their comfort in Sicily. The result is that agonized parting in which the will remains suspended between two equal intolerables. Twixt miserable longing for the present land and the far realms that call them by the fate's command. Book five. Line 656. It will be seen that in these two lines, Virgil, with no intention of allegory, has described once and for all the very quality of most human life as it is experienced by anyone who has not yet risen to holiness or sunk to animality. It is not thanks to the fourth eclogue alone that he has become almost a great Christian poet. In making his one legend symbolical of the destiny of Rome, he has, willy nilly, symbolized the destiny of man. His poem is great, in a sense in which no poem of the same type as the Iliad can ever be great. The real question is whether any epic development beyond Virgil is possible. But one thing is certain. If we are to have another epic, it must go on from Virgil. Any return to the merely heroic, any lay, however good, that tells merely of brave men fighting to save their lives or to get home to avenge their kinsmen will now be an anachronism. You cannot be young twice. The explicitly religious subject for any future epic has been dictated by Virgil. It is the only further development left. That's bold. Wow. <laughs> <It> does.
0: <sighs> How do you like them apples? Okay, so I'm asserting for the audience, if I may sum up. Lewis is saying all right we've got the we've got the primary epic as 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 Homer has done, and then we have the secondary epic, which is secondary only insofar as it is a further development mm-hmm. and he argues a greater development because he speaks to what he calls vocation or if you like the city of man or if you like the grand pagan dream of the Uber nation state, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Superman, which 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 we could argue was was the subject of, of Homer, if you like. And this, again, this is Jared's words. I'm, I'm telling you my impression of Lewis's argument there. And then he says, "And now there's only one place left to go, further up, hmm.
1: and further in."
0: <laughs> yeah, where did you get that? Young
2: twice. The Iliad is boys' work. <laughs> you you cannot read this and understand it, and still be a. Uh, you, you have to grow up. you, yeah, can't you have be to a leave young your
0: left lef- adolescence behind forever.
2: Leave your adolescence behind.
0: Oh man, I think that this chapter in particular, because of the that last that the last mm-hmm. sentence and a half, if you like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you understand why he's like, hey, um, b- before I get started here. <laughs> I get to be a critic. Hmm. I get to do this. I have a right. Hmm. It's logical. So, Jim, does it make you want to read the Aeneid? Like do you want to read Virgil now?
2: Yeah. It's really interesting. Lewis talks about how Virgil is trying to do this impossible task of drawing the reader into this this huge epic story by creating a sense of space. A sense of context, a sense of time, drawing the reader into understanding all of these things so that when he tells this story, you get it, you understand. And so, I mean, there is a part of that where it's like so much of that is on the reader's part to understand. The key words, Lewis said, is those who read it and have perception of it won't be young anymore, mm-hmm. they'll grow up. And so that's the responsibility of the reader. And so it is, it's like, I want to do that, but you also have to perceive it. So yeah, perceive you do. it correctly. Yeah. You have to be. You have, you have know, to enter smart. into it at, in the way
0: that the poet intended and, and wrote, the, wrote the poem and, and to enable you to do. I suspect mm-hmm. that it's our literacy that prevents us from savoring it. I think that's a big part of it. It takes discipline.
2: You hear about it a lot less than uh, Homer's works.
0: As this relates to us treating epic poetry, there's things that impress me after I'm done with this chapter. And the big one is Lewis could do what so many have done before, where you wag your finger at someone and say, you really ought to read these classical works. And what Lewis does that always delights me is he teases me <laughs> you cannot be a man after you've read this well and i'm like oh <laughs> he yeah. does throw uh, the gauntlet hmm. down like...
1: I'm, I'm looking at a sentence here jared and i feel like i could replace it with you know to to read this book is not gonna mean happiness for you but <laughs> once you've heard about it there's no happiness to not follow But, of course, you're allowed to stay behind. You are. You you don't have to read it. It's fine, Jared. It's all right. (laughs) It's It's all
0: right.
2: (laughs) You can can stay in your uncultured land, or you can come on this grand adventure (laughs) and read and and perceive.
1: And be forced to grow up and never have the joys of youth again.
0: Uh, You can eat mud pies and imagine yourself at a banquet. Mm -hmm. The rest of us, we're busy. You know what struck me
2: was the world building that Virgil was doing about how he would build space and time into his poems. Hmm. It was towards the beginning and how that was seen as something maybe new or instead of just simply a chronological.
0: So so that always struck me about Homer having grown up in Western civilization and the Western tradition. There was no preamble in Homer, it's like, and so I was out there floating on the waves, right? what <laughs> <laughs> even if Homer had said, all right, here's here's where my hero grew up, and here here's here's where his family's from, and he was married at this age and and we join him now out here on the ocean, you know that still wouldn't be the the way Virgil approached it, the way Virgil approached it I see echoed in Tolkien specifically, so where Tolkien comes in. In the hobbit he says in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit mm. uh, and 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 i'm going to start at this very very small molecular way and we're going to kind of expand out But then we go to the lord of the rings and he starts with bilbo and he references of things and then and then and then he does the exposition with gandalf all right mm. and he spends all this time you know remember remember they're all around the fireplace i'm doing this more for the audience because you guys remember this but. We he's, there. he's sitting around the fireplace and it gets dark and dark and dark and it gets a little warm inside as they're talking about Mountain Doom and stuff like that. And he tells this big dark story and then he pauses the story, comes back in the morning and starts telling the story in the morning and then reaches his long, long arm out the window and grabs onto Sam. You no, know, we, we take these things for granted in Western civilization. And so that's, that's interesting to me, this... This idea of what Virgil did, where mm. he says, "Here is the gods, and here's the national, here's Carthage,
2: this old city, mm. this ancient city, mm. facing the Tiber's mouth, a long way off."
0: And I'm going to tell the story about it, about Rome. Yeah, here's the story of Rome, and we've tied it into the previous pretty quick, and I'm it's like an to-
2: invitation to go on this on this epic with with Virgil. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And what Lewis is asserting here, where he's handling the personal and what we're seeing as kind of a large-scale chronological, as he said, and how he is, is managing those and weaves this secondary epic.
2: I also got a sense of Virgil's, kind of back to him being a guide. I started reading Dante's Inferno, and in Dante's Inferno, Who is the guide? That's Virgil, isn't it? Virgil. Virgil's a ghost in Dante's Mm -hmm. Inferno. How appropriate. How appropriate. And so when we were reading about Virgil writing about these ghosts and people who were once something, it it just really struck me. It's like, well, that wasn't on accident, I'm sure. I'm sure.
0: And Dante was Italian.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But in, in Dante's Inferno... Virgil is the guide, he's leading, he's helpful, he's the helpful guide through this very dark realm.
0: My copy of Dante's Inferno, it's a large edition, it's very large and not terribly thick because it's so large and a lot of the woodcuts that are used to illustrate it are fantastic. Mm. And uh, what struck me as I began to meander through uh, Dante's Inferno was his expectation that I was well-read As it related to Virgil and as it related to Homer, Hmm. he just took that for granted. So he was expecting me to know what was going on.
2: Right. Hmm. Well, that's what I got a sense of when I was hearing about Paradise Lost. Milton's Paradise Lost was he expects you (laughs) to have read, you know, the Divine Comedy to have read Virgil, to have read Homer, like all the way down like this. And to have read the Bible. And to have read and perceived the Bible Uh and all of its entirety and all of it. So it was like, wow, if I want to get there, better start at the bottom and work my way up because uh, otherwise I'm just going to be tossed about and not understanding any of it. It's all going to go over my head.
1: And we have no context for this because the books and largely in print today like if you're in the middle of a series they're gonna stop and remind you every page about things that happened in the last book within the same series Hmm. no one's going to expect you to have read an entirely different book from an entirely different era by an entirely different author to understand their current work Hmm. if they do they're gonna give you a summation of the they're gonna give you some bullet points
0: that's true
1: so yeah what if
2: what if we wrote a book like that? No context where, for that. So you had to have read these 10 other books in order before you read this book. I mean, you could do that in a series, but yeah, like you said, from ages past. Oh my gosh.
0: If, if we're going to really answer this question in a practical way, we need to meet the people where they are currently at. I mean, that where is the consumer at the moment? Partly because of God's extraordinary mercy and because of his unwarranted favor and because of the obedience of our forefathers uh, for g- multiple generations, multiple, multiple pre-American generations of Christians throughout the centuries. We're at a point now where we have time. The thing that the technological revolutions just in my lifetime, which you know, I'm 42, it's astounding to me how m- much more people are able to get done and create in a day than when I was a kid back in the 80s. I've talked about this a lot, but it used to be, you know, in a world without cell phones, I felt like we spent half of our time trying to not lose each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we spent copious amounts of time wishing we could stay in touch with people. We spent copious amounts of time wishing that we had a radio show so that we could just do you know, like like what we're doing with this podcast a lot of our capacity to create is here, but our capacity to savor things has been lost because of the same electronic devices that enabled us to create mm-hmm. so it's been difficult trying to figure out how to do it
2: at my work one of my my, my boss was kind of talking about that. I work in a manufacturing job and he was reminiscing about when they used to have to make things, if they made a mistake on uh, something as they were making it, it was a big deal. But because of the rapidity of being able to create now, be able to have these manufacturing tools that are so much faster than they used to be, if there was a mistake, it would be not a big deal. Just make another one. And so from what he was talking about, he was kind of, reminiscing and also bemoaning the fact that there doesn't seem to be a real value to the work now because you can just scrap it and start again because it's so fast and you've got these tools that make so it's like oh i don't really care because i you know if i make a mistake big deal just make something new again it's so easy to
0: create (laughs) i struggle over this myself quite a bit do i make something so that i can get lots of listeners because if i do i need to be producing a podcast today. Or do I produce something that I am willing to re listen to?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And for me, I've done both. So I tried out both. And for me, I decided it wasn't worth it to just produce this yeah. hot garbage. So I did that. I call it hot garbage, but there's an entire season of this podcast where I am doing really bad reading while I'm driving sometimes or somebody's driving me or I'm out outside and I'm talking into a cell phone mm-hmm. and I'm just uploading it. And that was all of the deliver us from evil podcast up to this point. And whether you like it or not, the number of people that listened to it, uh, according to the uh, matrix that I had plummeted. So the podcast itself became wildly Popular and then wildly unpopular Mm -hmm. it was like i flipped a switch Mm -hmm. and i took advice from someone who didn't understand my product and i ought not to have listened to them i should have just made really good product period Mm -hmm. that was the expectation i had established that expectation i should have just stick with that the other thing that i learned in the midst of that was that what we do what we create right now does have re-listenability value on it? Like, if if I was doing political commentary or cultural com- cultural commentary, uh, well, right now as we're recording this, they're offloading onto the public the Rings of Power by Amazon. All right, and finally, the critics who were shameless shills and profoundly politically correct are finally beginning to admit that it's pretty bad. It's a real stinker, dinger. Which everyone knew it was gonna be. Yeah. Who cared? Everyone who cared knew it was gonna be pretty bad. And you know, they can't help themselves, it's their worldview. Yeah. They cannot help themselves. They have no moral imagination. And we're gonna actually gonna get to that later. But if this podcast was just talking about pop culture, it's outdated and it's irrelevant within a week of me publishing it.
2: Exactly, yeah.
0: And so what I can see in terms of the value of of creators that I've chosen to be. I don't know that everyone should be this way, I'm just saying that I know that I've re-listened to a lot of my podcasts. I don't re-listen to the Deliver Us From Evil stuff. Mm. I can't handle it, it's too painful. But I do listen to my other stuff, Mm. and I think it's very valuable. I listen to like this series specifically as an example. We just published the final recording that we had previously done today so i listened to that i finished it up about a half hour before i made dinner and then you guys came over so i'm really refreshed on that but i've also when i was driving around i went down to corvallis the other day and i listened to all of our previous episodes that we mm-hmm. did on this book in preparation for this you see and i i have enjoyed really enjoyed relistening to all of that because we've gone pretty far afield mm-hmm. And now that I've consumed this chapter, I have a context to put it in the greater context of the worldview that I'm trying to present to my children, my grandchildren, hopefully your grandchildren and so on. And speaking to the issue of of the Iliad and the Aeneid and the Divine Comedy and Milton's Paradise Lost and Spencer's Fairy Queen Mm. and the Morte Arthur, and the Ballad of the White Horse, These are sweeping epics. I would like my children to get to the place where they're not reading them out of drudgery or out of guilt, but that they're reading something because they're inspired to do so. Hmm. And they can see that there is something delicious over here. But if you're expecting soda pop and you grow up drinking soda pop, learning to enjoy wine is worth the effort. Hmm i I think this chapter, for me, as it relates to my taste, has really piqued that for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's revived that old drive that caused me when I was twenty six, twenty seven or whatever, to buy the Aniad in the first place mm-hmm. and to buy a copy that would hold up over time, not just dry out and fall to pieces. And hopefully, one of my children, when when they get around to listening this will will have inherited my library and they will have access to what is in my library. So, this is exciting to me, any it is. And, and it begs a question that I have for you guys. If theoretically you guys were to start a podcast,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what would you do?
1: We talked about We've that talked a little bit. That. And yeah. one thing I would like to do is, is to capture family stories like when grandpa sits down and mm-hmm. spins out a yarn. I'm like, oh, I wanna hear this again. And mm. I want any children we have to hear this. And I want it to be, Yeah, I want to yeah. gather with my cousins and listen to this, you know. You know, it was
2: very, you know mm. what you did with your family on The Madness of Bill Bauer? You interviewed some of your own family and, and long-term family friends. And I thought, wow, that was so great. And I heard some of the material that didn't make the cut that would not help the telling of the story of uh, the madness of Bill Bauer, but it was just like a gem all on its own for posterity and for sharing and for, you know, uh, long after these people are gone out of uh, your life, you can go back and listen to that. And, and have
1: that. I've heard it said from family members and from, from other people from older generations that we, maybe me specifically, maybe my generation doesn't enjoy family history so much that we don't want to hear mm-hmm. it but i think in some cases it's that older generations don't know how to tell it and pass it on anymore like yeah. it's hard to sit down and actually find out new things and i'm always delighted when i when i do hear a new story or you know oh i you know i hardly know anything about my great grandparents and so i'm like piecing together what I think they might have been like in my mind. And so if we said, Hey, grandpa, I think it's we're, we're going to sit down and yeah. tell mm, a story yeah. a week. You know, it's not something you have to try to fit into a social thing. It's not pulling out this story that sh- is the one you go to. And so it's the mm. one we've always heard. It's okay. This is where we left off. Where are we now? Like, I want this history. Yeah. Um, I want
2: this generational
0: context. You yes. said this was one of the things was this a generational context, the but what was something else you said one of the things so what was one of the other things
1: stories themselves i think we've talked with you about this bedtime stories with Jim and on Lisa. maybe jared in the corner piping up whenever yeah. he has a yes uh, well
2: i mean yeah. part of that was uh, jared's telling of peter pan that he never got around to no i didn't finishing. i didn't finish peter pan no. i'd like to add one more thing if i was wiser and a better man. I would do a reading of the epics, starting with the Epic of Gilgamesh and
0: Job. We might as well do Job.
2: Start with Job. Have era appropriate instruments doing the droning and the plucking behind to kind of carry it and do it in the style similar. I looked for something out there in the world of the internet Kind of what I'm describing. I couldn't find it, so.
0: Well, if, if we were better men. Well, I, you know, after this, I'm I'm definitely excited about hearing you guys' podcast. Oh
2: yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. Which Stay one? tuned. All of them.
2: All of them.
0: If if I have any advice for people that are going to start a podcast, there's a ton of value in the one shot where you don't have any editing at all. You just sit down and you just do it mm-hmm. and then you upload it. Mm-hmm. You misread it and you do this and you do that and you kind of do things kind of kind of janky and start with that standard if you like. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then right, it's going to cost you money for the entire duration of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Hire an editor and hand over the audio to them to edit who is passionate about what you're doing. And you need to recognize that the editing takes as as long as the recording sometimes longer and i don't recommend doing what i did where i brought in multiple elements and multiple this and multiple that that is that's like a production level. insane amount of work yeah. insane amount of work it sounds amazing. amazing right and it draws people in and it's really good also if you guys decided to do the reading and i'm speaking to the audience right now because there's like a dozen people that listen to this podcast. I would like nothing better than for the dozen or so people that listen to this podcast to actually begin creating content. You should do it. You should start a podcast. And a couple of side notes on this, my setup here is pretty nice. Mm -hmm. And people are drawn into it. Having headphones on, having a quality microphone makes a big difference. As an example, when we started this podcast, I had a cheap microphone and it slowly died throughout the podcast. Mm. And now I you know, was able to purchase a third microphone that was high quality. And now that's going to show up now, you know, in the last couple of episodes, this will be showing up, including this one. Mm. So buying a quality microphone is also helpful, but it's also true. And this is something I would like you to keep in mind is that your cell phone has an outstanding microphone has built-in software that does a lot of the work for you. And if you decided to go on Anchor, type in Anchor into your app store and uh, you can download an app and you can enter your email and you could start a podcast immediately. Hmm. And you can talk into it and then just upload it. You can get bumper music on each side. They often provide that for free. It's one of the more remarkable pieces of software I've ever seen. I do strongly recommend considering that for the new podcasters out there that want to do it. It's brilliant. But if you want to do something that's going to last for multiple generations, you need to keep in mind that it has to do more with the content choices than with the hardware. Mm-hmm. So what is your content going to be? Can you record something that you want to listen to? And if you're like, oh, I can't stand the sound of my own voice. I don't have anything to say to you. Yeah, you know, it's too much work to convince you that your voice doesn't actually bother anybody besides yourself. There's no way that I'm going to convince you that that's true. There are people whose voices are extremely annoying. They're the ones that make the most money off their voices because they're distinct. Hmm. flack.
2: Hmm.
0: So if you want to start a podcast and you want to contribute, get involved in the creation game instead of just being victims of everyone else's sub-creations, please do it. Please do it. And there's a mountain in American and Western civilization. There is a mountain of content that has not been touched, not been touched. And you could approach that and you could make an impact in your little piece of the culture. You could stop being a consumer and start being a creator. It's not hard. And it is worthwhile. And you will have a built-in audience and especially if you make something that you will listen to. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would love to finish several books, several works of literature. So I published Peter Pan a couple of episodes of Peter Pan and I realized I need to do I need to do my small and smallest curriculum. Mm-hmm. I need to act like I'm not gonna live for another fifty years. I need to act like what is the most important thing that I get recorded and I offer commentary on. That's why I'm choosing to do what I'm doing in the order I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, I would love to get to the point where I'm doing Peter Pan and Winnie the Pooh and who knows? The Lord of the Rings with commentary. Who knows? I would love to do that. Jared's not recording Lord of the Rings and doing commentary. Talking about what is the Mm -hmm. matter with Jared Bauer? Who is Jared Bauer? He's an imposter. This is an imposter. (laughs) But I decided to do the Small and Smalls curriculum because in order to change the world we live in, in order to change the world we live in, I need my children and so on, multiple generations, to have access to the things I had access to, to the truths that I, uh, you know, I've, I've gathered an inheritance or a momentum of revelation, if you like, of insight, of beginning to think outside the matrix, and now that I've been red-pilled and I can see, oh, my gosh, the power of creation, the power of, of functioning as a sub-creator, of, of not surrendering the medium that is the platform, but rather of, of creating my own and insisting that everyone else, I, you know, have, everyone has to deal with me now. There are evil men who listen to this podcast hoping that they can get some leverage on me. Weird but true. Of the dozen listeners, maybe two of them are just opposition research. Crazy, right? Hmm. And yet that is the truth. So what I'm hoping to do with, with this is to inspire people, is to perhaps even prod them into becoming creators. If you guys became podcasters and you started creating content that was, if you could do Winnie the Pooh, if you could do some of this other stuff, that enabled me to drive down the road and just turn it on with a car full of kids, Mm -hmm. man, that would be great. Mm -hmm.
2: That would be pretty cool.
0: It would be. We've wandered very far afield on on this chapter and I I feel the need to to wrap it.
1: Well, I was actually thinking, you've kind of been talking about your vocation, Jared, which was kind of one of the main points in this chapter. Mm And I guess I just wanted to touch on how amazing this chapter was because of how much it made you want to read this book and how much it made you want to pursue this elusive vocation. And it, it never once says, it it, it in fact, it, it tells you straight out actually that It's not going to bring you happiness, necessarily. It's going to be hard. It's going to be work. It's just kind of a slog. They say that multiple times, and yet, and yet, if you think about the previous chapter, where everything is just this background of meaningless suffering and flux, and we're just these sandcastles of our own human might that will just get washed away by unchanging pounding waves of time like there is such a lift and a rise in the spirit to hear this is hard but there is something I'm chasing after and there is this longing and there is this beautiful land that maybe sometimes I can see maybe sometimes I only have a dimly remembered dream of in the morning, but I know it's there, and that's more important than my happiness, and when I'm gone, it still is, and it is sovereign over the suffering. Amen. Twixt miserable longing for the present land and the far realms that call them by the fate's command.
2: Have you ever yeah. read Bambi that will make you I lose your Bambi. adolescence <laughs> <laughs> in, in the best way possible? Like you'll grow. Uh, I'm to sure,
0: Jim. Weird. I'm sure in the best way possible. Best
1: way. <laughs> no, <laughs> you say the best things
0: possible. No, I was trying to refer
1: <laughs> back to Lewis, where he's like, <laughs>
0: yeah, oh, "We know what you did. We know I'm what you glad did." Glad
1: anyone who hears that will yeah. have the whole. So content. it's okay when Lewis says it. No, I know. It's, <laughs> it's okay, yeah, it's when, okay Lewis when Lewis says it. When
0: Jim says it, it sounds like sex. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to be fair, Lewis did use the word "sexual" in this mm. chapter, so nice. he did. Yeah,
0: he did. it was it was, really. was, it was, it was pretty inappropriate. It was I was outraged.
1: Problems. Yeah. So. yeah.